Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us your Holy Spirit now, we pray. Illumine to us your scriptures as we would seek to learn more of Jesus. Father, we come from places of skepticism and faith here this morning, of of anger, of peace, of joy, of defeat. No matter where, Father, we come from, would we know the welcome of your grace and mercy? And so even now, Father, do a good work. Draw us to yourself. Thank you for your great love and mercy through the Son, crucified and resurrected, in whose name we now pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I mentioned just a moment ago that we are going through different vignettes of Jesus from the Gospels. And this one here is one of my absolute favorite stories in all of the Gospels. I'm very happy to return to it now. Because this story, as I read it, is all about grace. And if there's one thing that I want to be about as a pastor that I want our church to be about, it's grace. It's the mercy of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Kind of like this. 
I'm told a story about C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian writer, thinker, public intellectual, 20th century Britain. And the story is told that there was a meeting of English folks, and they were debating lots of smart people in the room. They were debating about what makes Christianity unique among world religions. So there they were with their tea and crumpets and their top hats and monocles as they were calling cookies biscuits, as they were calling potato chips crisps, as they were spelling words that end in O-R-O-U-R, something about kings and queens. In walked C.S. Lewis. Point B. All of this discussion, what makes Christianity unique, all of these different long answers going back and forth, C.S. Lewis simply said, Grace. Grace. Jesus crucified and resurrected. There's no other worldview, there's no other system, there's no other philosophy, there's no other religion in the world that has grace. This is where you find it. And we encounter it so clearly in this story as well. So imagine being different characters in the story as much as we're able. Imagine you're this woman. And scholars will say that very, very strong chances are this woman is a prostitute, not mentioned as such in the story as a matter of ancient discretion. But that's probably what she was. And this is the first century she was hated for it. And if you're this woman, again, strong chances are that you're not in this vocation by choice. Probably you don't have or only used to have a close male relative, but those male relatives were lost, and so you were forced and or sold into this vocation, and you're hopeless and helpless, alone and condemned. If you're this woman, other women ignore you, and the men, even the men that have contact with you don't respect you. You're used and discarded, used and discarded, used and discarded. But one day, a certain man comes to town. And he's different. He talks about forgiveness of sins in the era of the Lord's favor. And you want to hear him especially because forgiveness of sins and the era of the Lord's favor for outsiders, for people that don't fit. A dinner party is thrown, and somehow, somehow you get in. And when you come into the presence of Jesus of Nazareth, you are overcome. You begin to weep. You let down your hair. You wipe Jesus' feet from your tears by your hair. You anoint him. And as you're doing all of these things, however, you can feel the judgment in the room. You can feel it from everybody, but especially from the host of the dinner party, Simon the Pharisee. But then this Jesus turns to Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. But then on the other hand, imagine that you're Simon, 
top of the world. Life is pretty good and business is great. You have high status. You're certainly not wanting for money or physical possessions. You're among the religious elite, which back in those days was a big deal. You're at the top. You're an expert on Torah, God's ancient law, on the Hebrew scriptures. You're respected by everybody. But one day, a man comes to town, and he's different. He speaks of the forgiveness of sins and the era of the Lord's favor. And you want to hear more. So you throw this dinner party, and somehow, somehow, this woman gets in. You know, everybody knows who she is and what she does. She's notorious. And can you believe the scandal of her letting down her hair in such a public space? You and everybody else in the room know what's going on. She's seducing Jesus. And in those moments, you believe that you have every right. You have every right to judge this woman. And you have every right to judge Jesus because it sure looks like he's letting it happen. But you're wrong. Because you don't get grace. So let's talk in two parts from here. Thinking about grace and Jesus. Let's seek to identify more with both of these characters and find ourselves in their shoes, again, as much as we're able. And then let's receive Jesus. So, thinking about this woman a little bit more. Have you ever felt judged? Have you ever felt objectified? Have you ever felt isolated? Let's unpack these things. Probably this woman sure did. Judged. <clears throat> Have you ever felt the condemnation of other people? And thinking more broadly at the cultural level, we are in a really, really weird place, aren't we, when it comes to judgment. We kind of go between a couple of poles. On one hand, culturally speaking, you can't judge anybody. Not allowed to. Don't judge me. That's a knee-jerk reaction. But then have you noticed at the same time, people judge other people all the time. And somehow, in this wacky moment, both of these things obtain. Don't judge me. You can't judge anybody. But then also, you better believe that we judge other people all the time. That's just what we do. And for you, maybe you've been at certain places in your own life where you have felt deeply judged. And think about how that forms you. Think about how that malforms you. Think about how you're affected by such things. Have you ever felt judged? And that's why we need grace. And I'll say, too, when we're in this moment of judgment, it can be said that, that, that the problem with judgment here in the West is that uh, there's all these religious people, and, and certainly religious people, there are shrill voices out there, and they can be amplified by social media. Uh, we don't want to be those kind of religious people. But then on the other hand, here in the West, religion is on the decline, but by most accounts, especially as we think about civic discourse, nastiness is on the rise. It is. So we can't just blame religiosity for all of the judgment that's going on in culture right now. 
And in fact, there's a secular writer who wrote recently and said, with the decline of religion here in the West, there could be maybe not just a correlation, but a deeper connection or a causation when we're actually becoming more judgy. It was put like this. At its best, religion confers relief by withholding final judgments until another time, perhaps until eternity. The new secular religions, and again, this is a person who is a secular person, not a person of faith, unleash dissatisfaction not towards the possibilities of divine grace or justice, but towards one fellow citizens who become embodiments of sin, deplorables, or enemies of the state. You see, if we understand God, who truly is judge of all things, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, he is the final judge, final authority, but without saying God is judge and all we have is each other, we become judge, jury, and executioner of each other so much of the time. And so we can live in a state of agitated judgment all the time. And what if we need more grace? Have you ever felt objectified, sexually or otherwise? Surely this woman felt like that. And to go from the cultural level to the personal level here again, I'd want to ask the question, sexual revolution in the 1960s, where the idea is we need to get rid of all cultural expectations so that we can be truly free from guilt. Again, to me, that's not the whole story. A recent feminist writer observed that, hey, something's not clicking here. She put it this way, and I disagree with some of the conclusions of this writer, Heaven Lewis, in her article, uh, but this premise is very interesting to me. Yet here is the conundrum facing writers today. Our enlightened values, less stigma regarding unwed mothers, the acceptance of sexualities, greater economic freedom for women, the availability of contraception, and the embrace of consent culture haven't translated into anything like a paradise of guilt-free fun. Why does guilt remain? In fact, you could say, sex or otherwise, it's part of the human condition. Writer from New Jersey, Philip Roth, again, not a person of faith, but somebody very intimately acquainted with how as human beings we feel guilt. The ever-hovering shadow of humiliation is, in fact, what binds one to everyone else. What is it about us as human beings that, in Roth's words, we have this ever-hovering shadow of humiliation? And is the answer to keep stripping away any expectation whatsoever, will that bring freedom? Or is it grace? And grace alone? Or at the more practical level? You are how you look so much of the time in this cultural moment. And that seems to be pretty similar, give or take, from generation to generation. If you happen to be attractive, you're objectified, guy or girl. If you happen not to be attractive, according to those standards, you're judged negatively. If you're over a certain age, judge negatively. And think about how that objectification forms us and malforms us. So we might be looking at this woman in the story and say, this has very little to do with me, but maybe it does. Have you ever felt judged? Have you ever felt objectified? Have you ever felt isolated? In this culture, scholars will say that prostitutes such as this, they had no peers. There's no community. There's no friend group. 
she would have been considered a pariah. And haven't you noticed right now that friendships and relationships are hard? So many studies, both during the full speed ahead of pandemic, which I guess was the opposite of very much slowing down, and even coming out of pandemic, study after study after study says, over the past couple of years, we have less friends. Our community, our circle of care and trust with one another has drastically shrunk. That's why we're doing something here at church, for example, like the summer supper clubs, because we need to rebuild. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm in the same boat. Haven't you noticed how it's actually harder to show up for stuff? Because we're out of practice. Oh man, there's this group activity, whether it's church or otherwise. I should probably go to that. I should probably go to that. I should probably go to that. Ah, Netflix. <laughs> right? Because it's easier to stay isolated, but we're miserable when we do. But instead, we need to press through. And then the tribalization again. Friendships are so fragile. There's probably many people, or let's say a few, either in this room or online, you've lost friends over pandemic because of political disagreements. People that you used to be friends with, maybe it was a sharp falling out, or maybe you see his or her posts on social media and that other person sees your posts, and there's just this crawfishing away from one another step by step by step because you're not a safe person to me anymore. You see, we think, well, we've gotten rid of all authorities. Let's be more free. But when we do that, as we become more horizontal and less institutional, which has a lot of good things attached to it, this is not, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the good old days were good and today is bad. It's a mixed bag in both cases. But think about the ways in which you have handed over the bar of judgment to your peer group. And we still fear being fragmented from them. A Christian writer, pastor, thinker in Australia that I've quoted a good bit lately, Mark Sayers, has put it this way. In the democratic spirit of our day, we hold in suspicion positions of social authority, yet we submit to the power of peers. Social anxiety, peer group pressure, and competition all dictate our lives. Many are more afraid of offending their friends than they are of offending figures of authority. We have moved from a culture based upon hierarchy to peerarchy. We need grace. And so, if like this woman here, you felt judged or objectified or isolated, you, we need grace. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but here's the thing about grace. It's shocking to everybody. And it ruffles feathers both with religious people and irreligious people. It bothers Christians sometimes. It bothers me because it's so radical. And if you're somebody who's still trying to figure out where you are with Christianity, I would encourage you, burrow into grace and see if it's maybe a little bit different than what you thought. So we identify with the woman. And then also, we're able to identify with Simon. And this one's not very fun. Simon is full of judgment. He's full of judgment. When he sees the woman letting her hair down, weeping, wiping, anointing, 
in the next breath, he judges. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And we don't know too much more about Simon here, but we see later in Luke's gospel where Jesus talks about, this is my take on how Pharisees pray. Luke chapter 18. Before that, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, your name is holy. Your name is to be hallowed. Your name is to be revealed. Your will needs to be done. Your kingdom needs to come, not mine. But in Luke 18, Jesus says, this is how the Pharisees pray. God, thank you that I am not like other men. These extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even these tax collectors. Thank you that I'm better than they are. We're at a cultural moment where, for most people in our heart of hearts, we know who the good guys and the bad guys are. And do you think, for me as a good guy, that I'm better than the bad guys? You better believe it. I'm going to be in western Pennsylvania with relatives a little while. I, I have a dear aunt, Aunt Helen, and when she gets angry at something, she says, darn tootin'. Do you think we're better than other people, whoever the bad guys are? Darn tootin'. We think we're better. Even if, from one side of our mouth, we'll say, I don't judge anybody. I let everybody do their own thing. But then on the other hand, I'm better. And it's like, no, you don't understand. What these people over here think and believe is really toxic and bad for our world. Therefore, I'm better. And we should have discussions about that first layer. But just understand that those bad guys are created in the very same image of God that you are, and we all need the same grace. We all need the same mercy. Who are your bad guys? Be confronted by your own sin of pride. And so here we are. We share both the pain of the woman, perhaps at some level, but then also the pride of Simon, the Pharisee. And whether it's this woman, whether it's Simon, whether it's you, whether it's I, we need Jesus. Let's receive him. Because when we receive Jesus, we receive relief and forgiveness and freedom and restoration. Verse 38. To me, this is one of the best and saddest and most beautiful verses in all of scriptures. I'll read it again. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And in the story we see, Jesus doesn't objectify this woman. Like Simon, like all the rest, not Jesus. This is a different kind of relationship. This is a different kind of love. Imagine her relief because this relationship is built on a different foundation not objectified and so come to the one who sees you believe in this jesus and know that he sees you and let jesus rewire how you see other people see others differently Understanding that everybody needs forgiveness, including this woman here. 
You see, Jesus says towards the end of the passage, her sins, which are many. So it's not that, okay, this woman has nothing wrong with her at all. No, we're all totally depraved, the Bible says. We're all broken in sin. And he tells a story at the beginning. A certain moneylender, verse 41, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? That's what Jesus does on the cross. He died and rose again to pay the penalty for sin. And understand this. There must be a reckoning. There must be a satisfaction, an atonement made for all of the junk, for all of the sin in our lives, or else we are unreconciled before a holy God. And that's not a place where you or I want to be. But Jesus truly and fully has paid the penalty for all of that. And so when Jesus says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven, that's not just because this woman happened to catch Jesus on a good day when he was in a good mood. Jesus, I apologize. I see a lot of teachers in the room. Don't take this the wrong way. You're not this kind of teacher. But I had a certain category of teachers where the difference between a good day for teacher and a bad day for teacher was immense. Jesus was consistent in his character. And then also, says your sins are forgiven because he knew what he was going to do on the cross. That's why Jesus forgives. And there is in this story the shock of grace. Imagine being in this room when, in effect, Jesus, by saying your sins are forgiven to the woman proclaims to the whole room, however many people were there, she's with me. And probably for most of the people in the room, they would have said, Jesus, the last person that I would imagine that you would say this about in this room is this person here. She is with you? Be shocked by the lavish, immense, full grace of Jesus. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, wrote the book that's free, Take One on the Way Out said this about grace in another spot. Actually, this might be from prodigal God. I'd have to go back and check my notes. The gospel does not say the good are in and the bad are out, nor the open-minded are in and the judgmental are out. The gospel says the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel says the people who know they're not better, not more open-minded, not more moral than anyone else are in, and the people who think they're on the right side of the divide are in most danger. So imagine the relief of this woman, the forgiveness, the freedom, when she hears your sins are forgiven. She's with me. By virtue of what Jesus has done on the cross, it's as if he looks at all of us and says, I know, and it's okay. I know, I see you, and it's okay. Not because I'm anything less than completely holy, but I've settled that debt on the cross for you. A couple weeks ago, I had to ax out a quote. This is a quote that I almost said a couple weeks ago, but I'm happy to come back to it here. A writer named Mark Richard, to me, really captures the essence and the balance of the gospel, drawing on Flannery O'Connor, the writer. The thing is that, my, like my favorite writer, Flannery O'Connor, I believe the biggest threat to my soul is me. How different is that from saying God accepts you just as you are? To truly have gospel balance, we need both. There is absolute truth to the fact that God accepts us just as who we are. That's true. And we need to understand that the biggest threat to our own soul is us.
You see why we need both? If it's, there's no junk in me, there's no sin, God just accepts me, your sin is unreckoned with. But then also, if it's just, hey, there's a lot of sin in you, but you don't know the acceptance of Jesus, we're still under guilt. But the gospel gives us both. And then on the other hand, once more, Simon doesn't love this woman, probably doesn't love a lot of other people, because he doesn't realize that, in fact, he also needs forgiven. Nobody's free of needing forgiveness. The story goes on. Simon answered, verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. If you love little, uh, maybe you don't know forgiveness. But instead, come to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And when you do, we're freed from judging. We're freed from being that judgmental type of person. Even self-judgment, if you're a self-condemned person, if you feel that way, or constantly throwing fireballs at other people. We can be free from that. We can put down our pitchforks. I said, I forget when, maybe it was when I recorded a little video after the shooting in, in Uvalde, when I said that quick judgmentalism is junk food for our souls. And we just so fast can go to instantly saying, okay, these are all of the evil people. Don't get fat on that type of constant flaming because it's bad for you. Now understand, should we be discerning? So if you're here in the room as a Christian, should we be discerning? Should we constantly go back to the scriptures for guidance in our complicated and crazy world and actually put in a lot of work to figuring out what God says about this crazy world? Absolutely. But even as we have opinions and even strong convictions, we'll disagree with image bearers and not enemies. And that makes a huge difference. In part, that's what Jesus is encouraging the crowd at this dinner party. Have you noticed at the very end of the passage, there's a double pronouncement. Jesus calls this woman clean twice. Verse 48 and verse 50. Verse 48, your sins are forgiven. But then again in verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus, why would you say it twice? It wasn't just for the woman, although maybe it included that. It's for the other people. And you see, there is a vertical and a horizontal element. Verse 49, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, it's God Almighty himself come in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. He alone has ultimate authority to forgive sins. But then also, he's encouraging the crowd. She's forgiven and clean. And so you need to treat her as such. Jesus is working for restoration now. And filling in the story, maybe that goes like, hey, everybody in the room, why don't you help this woman get out of this vocation? Include her, accept her, love her, help her to get out so that, so that you're not putting her in the way of sexual immorality. And treat her like a sister because she's one of you. 
and she knows that she's forgiven. As if to say, by Jesus, you heard me right. She's forgiven. And that's the challenge of the church of Jesus Christ, including now. How do we give a robust call to the obedience of the gospel? The obedience of faith, the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. And then also, the deep welcome and freeness of grace. Lord, press us ahead to be a community and people of both great love and great truth, great grace, and deeply rooted in the scriptures. To bring a friend and to show a friend the grace of Christ and to engage in Jesus' mission of restoration for the world. We don't know at the end of the story what happened to Simon. What will he do? We're not sure. But on the other hand, what will we do? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.